Um, it never surprises me to see how one week we have a bunch of people and the next is just a few, and I love how that works. But the one thing that uh, has been pretty consistent is what Sergio does on YouTube and the people that watch it. The numbers are always very good. And unfortunately, I said this last week, and I think everybody here knows this, but if you don't, Sergio is leaving along with Rhoda to move to Atlanta. And uh, I'm utterly unqualified to do anything on a computer or with a camera. I will try to learn this because the, you know, the people that watch this around the world do enjoy it. And I get a lot of nice comments and, and uh, you know, Sergio sees all of those. And uh, I don't know if this is something I'm going to be able to do. So if anybody knows anybody that can do that kind of stuff and wants to do it, spend a few hours a week, I'd appreciate it. If not, I will try to plug through it. You know, we'll see how that goes. Uh, we also, you know that we've moved from the afternoons to the mornings, and a lot of people stop coming because they have their own morning churches. So, of course, we need musicians. Keep thinking if you meet somebody, you know, if you want to play at church on the beach. Um, it's wonderful having Cena read the Psalms. I love that she does that, but uh, I would also like to have some musicians here as well, like we used to have. And um, so if you know any musicians, uh, that would be great. But uh, right now the priority is to see if you know somebody that would like to come out and do this for the YouTube audience, which is, I, I think last week there were 82 people last time I clicked on that had seen it, and that was only after a couple days of it being online. And there are people from Saudi Arabia, there are people in, in uh, Indonesia and Chile, and he knows, he's got all the statistics of where these people are, and some of the places they're not allowed to have the gospel talked about at all. And so, you know, it, here they're watching it on YouTube. And uh, then he knows how many have watched for the first five minutes and signed off and how many have watched for the first 30 minutes and signed off or how many have watched all the way through the video. And 100% uh, of them, every one of them, has watched all the way through the video. That's a lie. I just made that up to make Sergio feel good. I have no idea about that statistic, but he does know how many. But uh, anyway, um, today I want to read, before we get into the sermon, I want to go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 2 as our weekly uh, Bible reading. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is a recurring theme in the Bible, all the way from Genesis 3. John speaks about it in 1 John 3, 8 in particular. Probably the most, um, the most detailed reason of why Jesus Christ came, he says, is to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible teaches that we belong to one of two entities, either to Jesus Christ or we belong to the devil. That's what it teaches. And Paul confirms that right here when he says, in which you once uh, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil or Satan. And so our job as Christians isn't just to come to church on Sunday and to speak to people about or to listen to a sermon, but it's throughout the week to tell people about Jesus Christ, about his great love for the people of the world, and that he has come and given his life to bring us out of that darkness and into the light of God. Verse 3, Among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our own flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. A child of wrath means that we are enmity with God. And Jesus confirms this. Uh, people know John 3.16 very well, but John 3.18, just two verses later, says that he who believes in the Son is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already. We stand condemned because of our position in Adam, our first father. 
We stand condemned. And Jesus Christ came to say, I will replace the deeds of Adam. I will be obedient to my father, and then I will give my life as a substitute for you. Once again, a recurring theme throughout the Bible. We're either in Adam, which means we belong to the devil, or we are in Christ, and we belong to God. And we are adopted as children of God through the works of Jesus Christ. Um, verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. Every single religious system on earth demands that you do some work, something to please whatever God that they are trying to please. And that is not the way that the Bible presents our salvation. The Bible presents our salvation as the deeds being done by Jesus Christ and us simply relying, trusting in his works, what he did on our behalf, and then God graciously offers us salvation. There are no works involved in our salvation. And once we're saved, going back to Ephesians chapter 1, it says, the moment you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, and that is irrevocable. That can never be taken away. So don't, when you are having a tough time, I'd like to say this, I had a girl this morning email me, somebody that attended church on the beach while she was visiting, and I won't give her name, but uh, she, she said that I feel like the Lord isn't with me right now. I feel like I've been abandoned by the Lord. And there's, there's a reason why. She gave me the reasons. And I quoted to her Acts 17, 28, which says that in him we live and move and have our being. We are right now in the presence of God. He's the creator and therefore he is outside of his creation, but he is also imminent in it. Think of a, a painting. The painting, the, the creator is outside of that painting, but at the same time he's detailed every bit of that painting. He is working on it, and he's working in each and every one of our lives. And I told her that he has not removed himself from you. What we do is we remove ourselves from the Lord, and we distance ourselves because of something that's going on in our life. And it's never intentional. We don't intentionally, I'm talking about believers, say, I don't want you around anymore. It's just that we get sidetracked with life. And this is what happens. And because of that, we have this 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 separation between us and God, which shouldn't be there. And all we need to do, what I told her is probably the best thing to do at that time, and it's the most unnatural thing in the world, is when you're feeling separated from God, is to simply praise God. Take your eyes off of yourself and your own situation and give God the praise that he is due. And I said a very good equivalent of what you're in right now is being violently ill. And if you've ever been violently ill, like you're, you're throwing up time and time again, it's almost impossible to praise God at that time. But if you can come to yourself and realize that this is what he is due, even in this time of distress, then you are giving him a praise that is beyond a sacrifice. It's called the sacrifice of praise in the Bible, but he understands that it is against our very nature. And I said, try to do this. Try to praise him even in your difficulties, and I'm sure that he will reward you for this. So there you go with that. We're down to um, verse 6, I believe. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's going to follow a logical progression here in the next couple verses so that you can see your position in Christ. I'm going to back up a little bit. It says in verse 5, We were dead in trespasses and sins. This is our life from the moment we're born until the moment that we accept Jesus Christ. Just make a line with your, with your mind. You're going across. You're dead. Okay? And then he says, By grace, he made us alive together with Christ. That's the moment that you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Right there. That is the moment of your uh, change when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. And at that moment, verse 6 says, and he raised us up together. 
at that moment and sat us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Positionally, right now, you, if you have called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, positionally, you are in Jesus Christ and you are sitting with him in heaven. You talk about eternal salvation, that verse right there is it. He will never cast you out of the place that he gave his life to bring you into. So when you're having these doubts and your trials in your life, remember, the moment you're saved, he has seated you with him positionally in the heavenly places. And then verse 7 is an amazing verse that shows us that this reality is true. It says, and that in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about the life that we lived before coming to Christ. He's talking about from the moment that we were saved and he raised us, we're going to look back on that moment and we're going to say how exceedingly riches were the grace of his mercy because we are in positionally heaven right now and yet we're still sinning. We're still falling short of his glory and we're still doing things that we shouldn't do. But because of what Jesus Christ did, the Holy Spirit can dwell in us. And we, as I said last week, the contents of the vessel are more precious than the vessel itself. Our bodies are going to decay, and they do decay through sin and through age. But the contents of the vessel are infinitely valuable, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So here you go. You come to the point where you accept Christ. He seats you in the heavenly realms, and yet we're going to look back on that time. And I don't care if you die 30 seconds after accepting Jesus Christ. That 30 seconds is going to be a marvel to the people that look back and say, I can't believe that he kept me saved all that time. Those 30 seconds where I was such a corrupt person. But that's the grace and the glory of God. Verse 8, wonderful verse. Most people know this one. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. What's he talking about there? Is he talking about the grace that saves us or the faith that saves us? Well, in the Greek, there is a gender. Uh, in other words, it would be like me saying, Charlie is a nice guy. She's going to the store with me. There's a, 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 I'm trying to think of the term. There's a conflict between the gender. Well, in this, the grace and the faith are what he's talking about. It's not grace alone. It's not faith alone. Your faith is what allows God to give you the grace. So it is by grace you are saved through faith and that both not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. And then verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. After you're saved, you should be doing these things that will bring honor and glory to God. That is the intent of why he keeps us here. So many people say, well, why doesn't the Lord just take us after we're saved? Because there are other people that aren't saved that need to hear this wonderful work of Jesus Christ. He takes us out of here. There's not going to be anybody here to carry on this message. So we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning the Jewish people, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, remember what I said, you see words like therefore, you see words like but, they're always a transition to tell us something else is coming. But now, the contrast between what we were as Gentiles in the flesh, he says, you what, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That means we are near to the people of Israel, the covenant people of God, and we participate in those covenants with them, regardless of whether they're obedient or not. We talked about that a week or so ago. 
but we are brought near to the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Isaac, the covenant of Jacob, the covenant of King David, and any other covenant that applies to the people of Israel, we were brought near because of that. Verse 14, for he himself, Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. What he's talking about is in the temple, there was this wall and Gentiles were not allowed to go past that wall. Any Gentile found beyond that wall in Jerusalem could be killed or would be killed. That's all there is to it. But now that middle wall is broken. God has brought us near to the Holy of Holies where he resides and where the Jewish people could get nearer to. Now we are also brought into that because of what Jesus Christ did. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances. And we talked about that last week. The law is set aside in Christ. It says it's explicitly three times in the book of Hebrews, speaking of the entire Mosaic law. It is done. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it and fulfill it. He did. And once he did, we put our trust in him, not in works of the law, but in the grace and wonderful saving power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Having been abolished in his flesh, the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so to create in himself one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Afar off is us, those who are near are the Gentiles. He preached peace to both of them. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Both the Jew and the Gentile have the same Holy Spirit and which gives us access to the very throne of God. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. I spoke to a person at uh, Grace Baptist when I was out there one time and he uh, was into a cult in California and he claimed that he was a prophet. And he said that the church is, the foundation is the, what does it say right here? The, uh, how did he quote this one? The apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And he failed to understand it in the book of Corinthians. It says that Jesus Christ is the foundation. There's no contradiction here because the apostles and the prophets prophesied about Jesus Christ. The very words that they spoke are the foundation, which is him. So we are not some type of foundation of God's temple. We are living stones within that temple. Jesus Christ is the foundation as confirmed by the, the apostles and prophets. All right, and then he says here in um, verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple. As I said, Peter calls us living stones in that temple. Paul is making an example that we are the temple of the living God where God will dwell for eternity in his people redeemed by Jesus Christ. And then in, we finish in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God the Spirit. Wonderful news from the book of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, we'll go ahead and have Sina read one more psalm today. This will be the 90th psalm. It is the oldest psalm in the Bible. We know that because it's a psalm of Moses. Moses uh, writing was the first psalmist and uh, therefore this is the oldest psalm in the Bible. So there you go.
I just want to mention, um, if it's okay with Charlie, about uh, Spark. It's the Safe Place and Rape Crisis Center here, and uh, it's uh, located in Sarasota. They have one in Arcadia and one in Venice, and uh, they have shelters. They have uh, programs, you know, to teach young people about date rape and. Uh, you know, what is uh, emotional abuse, what's financial abuse, and not just physical abuse. And uh, there's some cards over on the table. And, okay, Psalm 90. A power, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night you carry them away like a flood. They are like, they are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your confidence. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon for it is soon cut off and we fly away who knows the power of your anger for as, for as the fear of you so is your wrath so teach us the number of our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom return O lord how long and have the compassion of your servants O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants, and your glory to their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Thanks, Nina. I have to tell you that I love this time of year. I'm looking at the sea oats right here coming out, and it's just this, it's such a wonderful thing in my heart to see, you know, how the uh, Florida in the summertime, people love to come here in the wintertime because the weather's a little cooler, but this is the place for me, and this is the time of year for me. Um, I didn't pray to get us started today. I thought it's probably better just to start by praising the Lord in the Psalms. I want to go ahead and give you this day in history, which I do every single week. On 3 June of 1539, Hernando de Soto claimed Florida for Spain. So there you go. That was uh, 1539, many, many years ago. I do believe that the oldest uh, continuous lived-in city in the United States of America is St. Augustine, Florida. So you wouldn't think that. You'd think it'd be like somewhere up in the New England, but that's not the case. It is right here in Florida. In 1784, the U.S. Congress formerly, formerly established the United States Army to replace the disbanded Continental Army. And although our nation was founded on 
several documents, the uh, Declaration of Independence and then the U.S. Constitution. This really is the beginning of America when you have a standing army. You can have all the paper in the world to make proclamations, but until you have a standing army to protect a nation, you really don't have a nation that is secure. And so this act and this establishment of the army is something that we need to look at and recognize that whether you agree with the military or not, is irrelevant. Without them, we wouldn't be preaching here at Church on the Beach today. We wouldn't have any of the freedoms that we have. And so my hat is off to every person that has served faithfully in this nation. Uh, we have one senior master sergeant that attends this church that right now is up in uh, Tampa because it's his two weeks of the year. He's a uh, reservist. He spent many years on active duty and now he's up doing his reserve duties. But I thank every person for being willing to do these things for our nation. And that leads us into 1864, where about 7,000 Union troops were killed within 30 minutes. 7,000 people died within 30 minutes in the Battle of Cold Harbor in Virginia during the U.S. Civil War. And it almost brings me to tears reading that. 7,000 people died that 30 minutes earlier might have been having breakfast or might have been writing a letter home to their mother. And they had no idea that they would be stepping through eternity's door in just a few minutes later. And that is the message that we need to continually remind ourselves and the message that we need to continually share with others is that there is a end to life. People say there's uh, two things that are certain, death and taxes. I know way too many people that can get out of paying taxes. But one thing is certain, we are all going to die. And 7,000 of these young men went off into history in 30 minutes. And then finally in 1974, Chuck Colson, who many of you know died just recently, he was an aide to U.S. President Richard Nixon, and he pled guilty to obstruction of justice. And he was sentenced to jail. He went to jail. He met Jesus Christ, and he became a champion of ministries to prisoners. He had a giant pr prison ministry. He also had uh, many conservative values, such as protection of life. And uh, he was just tireless in what he did. And, uh, but this was 1974, which led him to the place where he would receive Jesus Christ. So as I'm going to quote a little later, God is working in every human life to reconcile us to himself. We just have to respond to that call. And it took sending uh, this man to prison to do it, but it worked. And Chuck Colson was a great man of God because of that. Now, we're going to speak today on Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. That's 11 verses. I call it outside the land of promise. Two weeks ago, we spoke on Genesis 12, 1 through 9, and we're going to continue through and we're going to finish up Genesis 12 today. In these verses are going to be some things that seem very foreign to our current idea about how to do things. And Abraham, or Avram, before he had his name changed by the Lord, this great man of faith is often called weak, he's called lacking faith, or even sinful and what he did in these verses today. But I gotta tell you, I have never looked at these verses this way. So what we need to do when we are reading the Bible is to put aside our own thoughts, which come from our modern world view. And we need to try to insert ourselves into the times, into the locations, and into the cultures and situations that we read about. Now, if we do this, we can, if we don't do this, we can find ourselves making unfounded accusations about the way things were done right there in the Bible. And this isn't always easy because some of the things that happen in the Bible, and I spoke about this in a different context last week when I lived in Malaysia, they can seem so foreign to us that we simply can't process how these things could be. 
But when we come to passages like this that are difficult for us to reconcile, we need to continually ask ourselves, what is God trying to tell me here? If we do this, we're going to be far better off than throwing these unfounded accusations at biblical figures that God doesn't condemn. When the Bible condemns an action, we should too. But when it doesn't, we need to make sure that we take it at face value and not insert our own world views into what's going on, but attempt to learn from the text itself. And that brings us to our text first today, which comes from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now, we have trials. We have tests. Habakkuk is writing about everything being depleted from the land so that there's not even food to eat. And yet he got up and he says, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And that is what we should attempt to do during our own trials and struggles in life. And by doing that, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought on Genesis 12, 10 through 20 is going where God leads. In the first half of Genesis 12, God made the great promise to Abraham or Avram, get out from your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in obedience to this, Avram got up and then he departed just as the Lord had spoken to him. He took along Sarai, his wife. He took along Lot, his nephew. He took along all of the possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And he went down to the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And as he passed through that land, the Lord appeared to him and he said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Now, it would be good to note right now that it says, to your descendants, I will give this land. At this point, it doesn't say anything about Avram receiving anything. After building an altar at that place, he moved two more times. First, he moved to the mountain east of Bethel, and then he moved further south into the Negev. And this is where we start today's passage. This is Genesis 12, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Avram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. Now this famine, just like all natural events on earth, was directed by God. Avram would have no doubt about this as he had already established a relationship with the Lord. He'd heard the Lord's promises and he had believed them and he had acknowledged that by offering offerings to him. Now many commentaries right at this point will literally barbecue Avram for leaving the promised land and going into Egypt. They state that he lacked faith in this move. And I got to tell you what, I don't see that at all in these verses. The land promise was made at this time to his descendants. It wasn't made to him. He received the promise and he simply believed it. He confirmed it by building that altar and offering an offering on it. And then after he moved further south, he's down in the Negev. For all we know, he's sightseeing. He's just checking out the land that the Lord has promised to give to his descendants. And then eventually, a famine occurs in the land of Canaan. We don't have anything else to go on at this point. And famines are used throughout the entire Bible. 
for the correction of the people of the land. You're going to see this in Genesis. You're going to see it in Revelation. It's to correct the how the people are living in the land. Avram was living among Canaanites, and he certainly saw the, their lifestyle, how they were living there, and he might even preach to them, just as Noah preached to the people of the pre-flood world. We have no idea about that either. But a famine comes along at some point, and there is no reason to think that Avram didn't realize that this famine was to correct the very people he was dwelling with, the Canaanites. A good example of this type of correction that comes from God due to disobedience is actually found in 2 Samuel 24. It's where King David took an unauthorized census of the people of Israel. And you think, well, what's wrong with taking a census? The Lord had promised to multiply the people of Israel till they were like the sand on the seashore. And by going out and saying, I'm taking a census while he's sitting on his throne in Jerusalem is a demonstration of pride. He's saying, I want to show how great I am instead of trusting in the Lord. And that's why it was a sinful thing for him to do. So God spoke to David through his prophet Gad. Here's what it says. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. David chose very wisely because he understood God's great mercy, even to the disobedient, which is him in this case. Here's what David said. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Man would have no mercy on the Israelites, but he knew that God would. And of course, this led to David's purchasing the land, which is where the Temple Mount is today. It's right there in Jerusalem. Even in disobedience and even in punishment, God's purposes always work out to fulfill his plan in our lives. The promised land is very mountainous and it's completely dependent on two seasons of rain in order to grow its crops and to provide water. Apart from correcting the Canaanites, the famine may have had a secondary purpose of teaching Avram that everything comes directly from the hand of the Lord. And so he was completely dependent on the Lord. He would also learn that deliverance and direction is found in him alone. And so the natural thing to do to me would be to go where the Lord was providing water. And where is that? It's in Egypt where the Nile River is. It's flowing down. There's plenty of water. I can't personally find anything wrong with what Avram did here. It's logical, and it's what any right-thinking person would do. What would be less logical, at least to me, would be staying put in a land with no hope of having anything to eat or drink in it. But I got to tell you what, we often get stuck in our own little rut, and we're unwilling to move even when it is the right thing to do. We can look at famines in America's past, and we can see people that stayed in the area, the Dust Bowl, people sitting there with their hands folded, and they're not moving. And you think, why are they staying there? They won't simply get up and move when it's time to do so. And the question is, whose fault is that? Now, obviously, in some cases, it's not the people's fault. There's wars over in Somalia that people can't move. There's national borders that keep people from moving, whatever. But quite often, it is simply a resistance to move on. And I have to make a spiritual application here, is that there are churches that people attend that get spiritually dried up whether it's the pastor getting old and you know not preaching the word anymore or getting a new pastor that isn't holding to the word of God, it has nothing to offer. It's just like that barren desert. But what do people do? They stay put 
they feel at home with the people around them and they don't want to move away from their friends. And it's like saying to God that you are only a secondary issue in my life. And we can't be that way. We have to say, God, I'm going to follow where you are providing sustenance for me. Clinging to a spiritually dead church because it's our home would be just like Avram staying in Canaan where there was nothing to eat. There's no water. We need to follow the Lord and that's what he did as well. We need to follow his provision and that's what he did as well. We don't sit idly around and become so malnourished either spiritually or physically that we are no good to God or that we are no good to those who are dependent upon us. And so off to Egypt he goes. The name for in Hebrew for Egypt is Mitzrayim. And if you remember, he was a son of Ham, who was a son of Noah, and he's a brother of Canaan. So these are brothers. Canaan and Egypt are these two brothers. The English name for Egypt, just a little trivia for you, comes from the Greek. One of the possibilities is that it came from a pharaoh named Aegyptus. But what is probably more likely is that it comes from the soil, which is very dark around the Nile River, which the Greeks call Aegyptios. And there is also a very dark type of vulture that lives there that's called Aegypts. And so this dark color is probably where the term Egypt comes from. Just thought I'd throw that in in case you need another squiggle on your brain or something. Verse 11 says, And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to, his, to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Now, believe it or not, at this point, Sarai is about 65 years old. So Abraham or Avram must have been a very silver-tongued gentleman to say something like that, right? Actually, she was very lovely, and we're going to find that out in just a couple verses. So he wasn't just being nice to his wife. Sarai was a woman of true beauty. I don't want to tread on any thin ice here, especially with my wife, but I want to give you what I think is a modern parallel to Sarai so that you don't just say that this story is you know, without some validation. I would propose Raquel Welch. Now, I didn't say I'd propose to Raquel Welch, okay? So make sure you get that straight. I'm merely suggesting that she is one such as Sarai. Raquel Welch was born in Chicago on 5 September of 1940. And that would make her, as of today, 71 years, 8 months, and 29 days old. Or 3,743 weeks old. Or... 26,204 days old. Or if you want to talk about real old, today she would be 628,896 hours old. Or she would be 37,733,760 minutes old. Or guess what? Raquel Welch today is 2,264,025,600 seconds old plus or minus one or two at this point during the day. So she is a really old lady if you look at it from that way. And just to make sure that she didn't suddenly wrinkle up and blow away since her last movie, yes, I went on to Google and I checked out her pictures and she still looks just as lovely to me as she did when she did Barbarella like 50 million years ago. So if Raquel Welch looks this good at this age, then there is no reason to assume that a woman who was younger than her couldn't be just as lovely in Avram's time as well. I did that simply to validate that the Bible isn't making up a story here. And as a second reason to believe this, Sarai lived to be 127 years old. So from this context, she is really only in her middle ages at this point. 65 at this time is not that old. In Genesis, the ages are going to get shorter and shorter 
as it goes by until we get to the psalm she read today. People live to about 70 or if they're very fortunate, 80 years old. But she's just, you know, she's in her middle ages at this point. Verse 12, therefore it will happen, this is Avram speaking to Sarai, when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, Avram was so convinced of her beauty that he actually feared for his own life. And I got to tell you the truth, I do this quite often when I'm out with my own wife. She's so beautiful. She's such a lovely person and got such a lovely countenance that I am in continuous fear around her, thinking somebody might take me because of her. So I know exactly how Avram felt here. Verse 13, please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. In Genesis 11, verse 31, we saw that Sarai was Avram's sister because she was a daughter of Terah, his father. Later in Genesis chapter 20, we'll see that she was actually Avram's half-sister, meaning she came from a different mother. This is what the account says there in Genesis 20. And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever you, we go, say of me, he is my brother. So Avram isn't lying, nor is he asking Sarai to lie. They're simply not telling the whole story as they go. But I think that every single commentary that I have ever read on this account says that uh, what Avram did here was either lacking faith, it was sinful, or it was just plain wrong in one way or another. Every single commentary. And yet I have read this story myself probably 50 times or more, and I have never felt this way about it. Not once. The logic of the commentaries is that he was willing to sacrifice his own wife for his safety and that he was lacking faith in God by asking her to say this. That is what we do when we insert our own personal opinions into a story. We take our worldview of how we perceive the world and we insert it in there. I want to give you an example of this. Here's a quote from John Wesley on this passage. He is the founder of Methodist Methodism or the Methodist Church. He said, the grace Avram was most eminent for was faith, and yet he thus fell through unbelief and distrust in the divine providence, even after God appeared to him twice. And then he makes this little poetic saying here. He says, alas, what will become of the willows when the cedars are shaken? So he just believes that the guy had no faith in what he was doing. But how do we know that this very action of Avram wasn't an action based on faith, not lacking it? Let's read it one more time. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. He'd been given a promise by God that his descendants would be given the land. Nothing is said about Sarai, and to this point, she's barren. They'd probably been married for many years, and they had not had children through her. Nothing is said about her to indicate that she is a part of this. There is nothing also to suggest that Avram was required to have only one wife. And we're gonna see that after Sarai's death, he has another wife named Keturah and he's got all kinds of concubines as well. He has no idea that Sarai will ever have children. And only later will God's promise come that the son, Isaac, would be through Sarai. All he's doing here is making sure that he won't be killed because of her and because he is her husband. Does this in any way negate God's belief or Abraham's belief in God? No. Not at all. 
what we're going to see in just a few chapters is that when Avram's Lot nephew, Lot, is abducted, hang on one sec here, I just lost my place because of the wind. We're going to see in just a few chapters that when Avram's nephew, Lot, is abducted, abducted, he goes after the entire army who took Lot, and he's going to fight against them, and he's going to bring back Lot and the other safely. And why don't we assume at this point that he would do the same thing for his own wife when the occasion arose? In other words, he may see Sarai as the very instrument which saves him in the first place and which keeps him alive. God has made his promise to him, and she is a part of that plan. And I have no problem at all with what Avram has done here. The very thing that makes him a faithful man is that his actions are based on faith. If God were to come to one of you today and promise that you would someday be very wealthy, would you assume that a pot of gold is going to fall out of the sky at your feet? Or would you assume that he would use your circumstances to get you to the point that he has promised? I would think that any reasonable consideration would say that both you and your surroundings are involved in the process. You're simply exercising your faith through hard work and the opportunities that God places in your path as you go. And Avram is doing exactly the same thing. That's why I don't agree with these preachers that say, if you send in $150 to my ministry, God is going to fill your bank account with money. Or if you send in a seed to my ministry, God is going to pay off your mortgage. It doesn't work that way. God expects us to get up and he asks us to work and to produce. As a matter of fact, in the book of Proverbs, it says that a righteous man saves for his children's children. Each one of us has a job to do. And there are times where we can't do it because of the economy or whatever else. Nobody's blaming people for that. But we can't expect God to just drop a pot of gold at our feet is the point. And that is what's being said to Avram here. And that brings us to our second point, which is, I will bless you. Verse 14. So it was when Avram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. Avram was born 352 years after the flood. And this is about 75 years later, or about 430 years after the flood. There probably was not much difference in the complexions of the people of the world by this point. Although changes certainly occurred as people moved away from Babel and they started breeding among their individual family groups, there would be more and more differences as that occurred. In other words, as the Chinese moved east, they would look more and more Chinese as they went. Or the Scandinavians, as they moved up towards Scandinavia, would be much more Scandinavian-ish. But these changes are very, very gradual in the human chain of events. If you look at people, for example, in uh, a museum of America from two or three hundred years ago, they're going to look very much like their offspring today. So the point of this is that the beauty of Sarai is not so much a beauty of novelty. Like if you took a Chinese woman and brought her to America and said, wow, she's really beautiful because she's novel. That's not what it at all. This is a beauty that is recognizable in any society at any time. Verse 15, the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. Archaeology apparently shows that by this time, I mean, this is an extra biblical archaeological finding, there was already a monarchy established in this particular area of Egypt. This was about, as I said, 430 years after the flood and only about 330 years after the Tower of Babel. But the people had moved as far as Egypt and had established a very large society. 
And according to Jewish and Arabic writers as well, it was about the time of Riu, who was the son of Peleg that we talked about back in chapter 10, that Egypt was established. And this is actually right in line with the Bible. So we can be very confident that what is happening here is correct. And that's not very hard to imagine when we see what kind of a society America has grown into in much less time. Just a couple hundred years ago, they signed the Declaration of Independence. There were 13 individual colonies, mostly rural, with a few larger cities scattered among them. And now within just those 200 and some years, we have this giant nation of 50 states with industry. We've got all kinds of cities. We've got people all over the place. So the Bible is not making any stretches here. I want you to rely on what you're reading as being correct. The main seat of government in Egypt at this time, if you remember later, the pharaohs moved up the Nile and you get into the, the desert area where they were. But at this time, the main seat of government was in the north of Egypt, down in the Delta region where the Nile branches out. And that's where they would have been. And that's also where Avram would have come from the promised land, right into that area, right in the northernmost part. So the people under Pharaoh would have immediately noticed this group of people coming in. And that's why I'm showing you that each one of these things is more than plausible as it happens. Verse 15 continues, it says, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Regardless of what Avram thought when he asked Sarai to say he was his sister, this particular thing could not have been easy on him. This doesn't mean that his faith had to be weakened at all, but being taken in by Pharaoh is not the same thing as being taken in by somebody lesser in status. He may have planned a rescue or otherwise, but it would be a lot less likely under the Pharaoh of all of Egypt. However, Avram is described throughout the entire Bible as a man of faith, and he certainly exercised his faith at this time in prayer. That's why we pray. As Paul writes in the New Testament that he asked people to pray. He says the prayers of many. He talks about how many people coming together has an effect. And so this is what Avram certainly did. The Bible doesn't say this, but he was a man of faith, and that's where he would have exercised his faith at this particular time. So I don't see what other commentators seem to see in these passages, that he was doing something sinful or he was lacking faith in his actions. And if you see how things do turn out for Avram, it is more than probable that he was on his knees praying to God, he was a faithful man, and God responded to those prayers. In the New Testament, in the book of James, we read about a man who is a righteous man of prayer. Here's what he says. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So prayer really does work. Somebody gets on his knees and he prays to God, there is a famine in the land. He gets back on his knees three and a half years later, he prays, and the land starts producing its fruit again because of the prayers of one man. Certainly, Abraham was just as faithful. Verse 16, he treated Avram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. In the process of handing over Sarai, Avram is actually blessed, just as God said that he would be. He received all kinds of gifts because of her. And if you go to the Middle East today, and we got two people that have lived in Israel for much of their lives, they will tell you this is true. Go down into the desert where the nomads are. This is the wealth of nomads, even to this day. All of these livestock and everything, the more that they have, the higher of status they are. 
So concerning both the blessings promised by God and the safety of Sarai, we need to remember that not everything that happens is recorded in the Bible. Only things that are relevant to the story, the individual story that you're reading at that time, that is what's relevant. Avram is going to do, as I said, the exact same thing again in chapter 20 of Genesis. He's going to tell Abimelech, the king of Gerar, that Sarah is his sister. And after Abimelech finds this out, that she is his wife, God is going to speak to him. Now here's what it says. Now therefore, this is God speaking to Abimelech, restore the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are hers or yours. Now we're not given all of the information in these passages, like I said just a second ago, and why would that be? It's so that we can read other passages and we can reason out what God is doing and why. Abraham was a man of faith. And why can't we assume that every single step that is happening with his wife Sarai is one of faith? He understood, just like we all should, that everything is being worked out according to God's plans and purposes. And speaking of this exact incident, the 105th Psalm records this. When they went from one nation to another, now this is speaking about Abraham, but it's also speaking about his son Isaac, it's speaking about his son Israel. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Now, did he know this at that time? There's no reason at all to assume that he didn't. God had given him a promise. And so why should he, we think, that it doesn't apply in this situation as well? And I don't want to belabor this point too much longer. I've been talking about his faith, but I need to make sure that you understand that nowhere else in the Bible does it say that what Avram did here was lacking faith or that it was sinful. And so we need to be very careful when we read commentaries not to insert what other people may say is sinful into our own thought process. What Avram did here was according to the deeds of a man of faith. And that brings us to our own lives. How should we respond in our own lives? And should we do the same? I don't personally care how bad a situation is or how frustrating it is or how much we may lose financially, personally, or interpersonally. And I can tell you that I've got some very good Christian friends that over the past five years who have lost everything. I had one friend that had a business worth over $30 million and now he has zero. And yet he has held on to his faith in Jesus Christ through these tough times. He's had other problems as well, which are even greater, if you can imagine that. I don't want to give away too much or some people know who I'm talking about. But whatever happens in our life, we need to understand that it happened because God has allowed it to happen. And so it is a part of what God has ordained for each one of us. If we can see that in every single thing that happens in our life, then we really are living by faith in a world which would otherwise seem scary, which would seem overwhelming, or maybe even pointless. Does anybody know the book, uh, The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, where the title of that book came from? It came from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, which means that he had a knowledge of the Bible. But as far as I know, he never made a profession in Jesus Christ. He just, you know, lived his life apart from the covenant promises of God. And what did he do at the end of his life? The last note he ever wrote, he said, life is just one damn thing after another. And he took a gun and he killed himself. 
Now, that is what happens when we don't fix our eyes on Jesus. When we read the Bible and we don't say, this is God's word speaking to me personally. We need to apply these things in our own life. But I'll tell you what, the 119th Psalm, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's 176 verses long. It's broken down into 22 octaves. In other words, eight verse sections. And I read one of those eight verse sections every single morning of my life. It is the very first thing I do every single day. And you will learn to trust in the Lord and you will learn to respond to what is going to happen in your day much better if you learn to read one of those octaves each day. I'm going to read you one right now so you can see how God can work in our lives even through troubles. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. This guy is being bound in by wicked people all around him. And when it says the cords of the wicked, it's like he's being torn apart by these wicked people. And yet he hasn't forgotten God's law. At midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. And I can tell you something, I do that every single day of my life. I get up every single night about midnight, and it's not because I want to. If you know, I'm a 48-year-old guy, and so that thing starts to happen about this time. But every single night, when I get up to do what I need to do, I praise God every single night. Even when I'm miserable, even when I haven't slept well, even when I'm in pain, that is one of the things that I try to do. And that is what I would ask you to do, is to take your cares and to turn them into praise of God. And he will change your thoughts about how you respond to everything that happens in life. At midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. And then he finishes out this particular octave with, the earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. Wonderful words from a guy that understood who his creator is. And one last thing before we get out of this area, which is about Avram's time in Egypt. There is an ancient tradition which is recorded by the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, and he says that it was Avram who delivered arithmetic and astronomy to the Egyptians. And these were sciences, we know this, that came from the Chaldeans in Babylon, which is exactly where Avram came from. He came from Ur of the Chaldeans. And so if this is true, then all of the wisdom for the great achievements of Egypt, like the building of the pyramids, and we know that it took astronomy to build them because they are lined up perfectly with stars. And they're also lined up perfectly with like true north and all of these different things and all of the technology, all of that very well may have come from this man, Abraham. And it allowed these people who understood physical construction to unite the two, the physical construction and the wisdom into these great monuments that are still standing, you know, thousands and thousands of years later. And that brings us to our third and final thought today, which is the wife is restored. Verse 17, but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Avram's wife. The first time that God's chosen people enter Egypt, which is at the time of Avram is 430 years after the flood. And it results in plagues on Pharaoh's house. And guess what? 430 years after that occurred, the chosen line of Israel is again going to be in Egypt. They're enslaved under Pharaoh's rule and it will again result 
in plagues on Pharaoh's house. As it says in Ecclesiastes, and as we find out, is oh so true throughout the Bible and throughout human history. That which has been done will be done again. That which is, has been will be again. And there is nothing new under the sun. There is this beautiful and rich and complex, even astonishing system of patterns in the Bible. And we can look at that and then we can marvel at how wonderful everything is, even in our own lives, as we participate in this great drama which God is putting together on our behalf for the people of the world. And when we look back in the ages, we're going to be able to see how God has worked out everything so minutely and so perfectly for the people that have called on him. God shows that he is in complete control of the situation. The psalm that I read earlier said he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes. Even when it may seem that things had turned out for the worse for Avram, the Lord had a handle on it each step of the way. And it is no difference in our own lives. He's made a promise to Avram, and Avram believed it. And he's made a similar promise, and we need to hold fast to it, even when things are tough. And what is that promise? I misquoted it a couple weeks ago, but I wrote it down today, so I quote it properly. It's Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Should we have any less faith in whatever our trial is than what happened to Avram? This is exactly what he is commended for in the great hall of faith of the Bible, which is Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 18 says, And Pharaoh called Avram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. Regardless of whether Avram acted in faith or whether he acted faithlessly, he gets rebuked by Pharaoh. God's hand of judgment for having this prophet's wife in his own home was very heavy on him. There were plagues, according to the Bible. And this is so evident that instead of killing Avram, which you think he would have done, he says, get out of here. He knows that he would have made a greater mistake by killing this prophet of God. So instead, he just simply rebukes him and he ensures that he has not done anything to his wife. It says, I might have taken her as my wife. That means that he had not sexually touched her in any way. He hasn't violated her. All right. So before we finish up, finish up this verse, let's look at the similarity in the terminology between this account with Avram and the account of the Exodus, which is 430 years later. Here's what Pharaoh says to Avram. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go away. And Pharaoh says to Moses, then he called for Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, rise, go out from my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Two Pharaohs, 430 years apart, because of plagues on their home, bid the prophet of God to be gone. Verse 20. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Avram left, having journeyed to Egypt. He had gained more wealth, just as God promised to bless him, and he was also delivered from the famine in the land of Canaan. So God has been with him through the entire process. He protected him, and he blessed him in his pilgrimage, and he will continue to do so all the days of his life. And in a spiritual application of what we've read in these 11 verses today, I'd like to remind you of something I said in the sermon two weeks ago, that Avram first pitched his tent between Bethel, which is the house of God, it's a picture of heaven, and Ai, 
which means a place of ruins, which is a picture of hell. He headed after that down into Egypt. And in the exact same way, Jesus came and he dwelt as a human being among us, living on earth between heaven and between hell. And from there, he journeyed into the land of chaos, pictured by Egypt. You see, just like Sarai belonged to Avram, but was taken into the house of Pharaoh, each one of us was created by God, but we strayed on our own initiative into the land of chaos and the land of sin. And from that place, we have been delivered by Jesus, who is our rightful husband. By faith in him and by faith in what he has done, we can be rejoined to God and he will safely take us back to the land of promise. Avram means exalted father and Sarai means princess. And to our great and heavenly exalted father, we are a princess and we are a treasure worth seeking out. And so Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity and he walked among us and he keeps us safe even when at times we might think he has left us unattended. And this is why I believe that Avram had faith during this entire episode. It's because his life and his actions only look forward to the greater salvation which is found in Jesus Christ. And so may we never forget the deeds that God has done and has accomplished on our behalf through his own son, Jesus. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me take just two minutes and explain why he came. It's veiled in here. Let me unveil it to you. The Bible says that we have all sinned, every single one of us. And because of that, we are separated from God and we will die. The wages of sin is death. We go to work, we get our paycheck because that's what we've earned. We've sinned and we have earned death. And the Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, each one of us having sinned in our own flesh, Christ Jesus died for us. God is willing to say, I will take the anger that I have for the sin in your life and I will put it on my own son, making a substitute between the two of us. Just as if I didn't have enough money to pay a fine when the court says $5,000 fine, somebody else can pay that fine. But we can't pay our own sin debt and no other human being can because they already have sin. But Jesus was born without sin and he lived sinlessly. And so he is willing to make that exchange on our behalf. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that God loves us enough to do this thing. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is a gift and it is eternal if we will simply trust in him. I got a poem for you and then we'll be done. It's called Avram in Egypt. Now there was a famine in the land, and so Avram went down to Egypt to dwell there. The famine was severe, which came from God's hand, and so to a more fertile land his journey he did prepare. And it came to pass as they closed in on their destination outside of Egypt. Avram told Sarai, his wife, you really are a beauty, almost beyond imagination, and for a beauty like you, other people will want to take my life. Please, my lovely bride, say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live and not be killed by another mister. Yes, for you, certainly, my life they will take. And so it was when Avram came into Egypt, finally, that the Egyptians saw the woman. She was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh told him of her immense beauty. And so she went to his home. To Avram, she was so dutiful. And Pharaoh treated Avram well for her sake. He gave him sheep, oxen, donkeys, camels, and servants too. What a trade it was, so much did Avram make. 
why Avram could have started his own little zoo. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh with great plagues because of Avram's wife, so much so that Pharaoh feared even for his life. And so Pharaoh called Avram and asked him quite, quite plainly, what is this thing which you have done even to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she was your sister instead? I could have taken her and then lost my own life. Yes, because of you, right now I could be dead. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. I don't want to see you anymore. Not another day. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Yes, they sent him away before things got too grim. And when Avram left, they were surely very glad. Now in the story of Avram, there is certainly a lesson for each of us to remember as we live out our days. We need to be sure of our convictions, not just to guess them, that God is in control and he deserves all our praise. Live your life with faith like Avram had, and in the end you'll see that life ain't that bad. Hallelujah and amen. 